Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Who has enjoyed working through the book of James over the past five weeks? You can say yes or amen or you can, okay. Um, it's ouch, yeah, yeah, from Isway's week. Um, you're definitely going to say ouch this morning. Um, when I was um, <laughs> when I was doing my sort of initial reading around this passage that I'm going to share on this morning, one of the commentators, very respected uh, New Testament scholar, uh, had this to say: When one reads through this passage carefully, paying attention to the details, it is hard to imagine it ever being preached today in America or any other wealthy country, even by non-prosperity preachers. Spoiler alert, I'm not a prosperity preacher, um, and this is a wealthy country, so we're doing something quite unusual today. But really, the book of James, um, one of the themes that I touched on in week one and really runs through the whole book is the relationship between the rich and the poor and our attitude to wealth. It's really, in a way, one of the meta-themes of the book. And so that kind of culminates at the start of chapter five, which is what we're going to look at today, verses one to six. Um, And I'm conscious there's more to chapter five, but actually this is, as you'll here when we, when we read this in a minute is such a kind of hard-hitting passage that I think we should just sort of sit with it and um, maybe you could read the rest of chapter five in, in collectives or something this week and um, so where the world um, or where, where the bible wants to talk about the haves and the have-nots that you know the world always wants to talk about the haves and the have-yots <laughs> sorry I just I just had to, I just had to sorry it wasn't bad was it no okay um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to sort of soften you up a little bit before we, we, we get into the, the, the passage. When, I, when I, I was expressing my nervousness to Andrew a few weeks ago, like, yeah, this is it's a pretty intense piece of scripture. She said, oh, it can't be that bad, you know, read it to me. <laughs> so I read it to her. And she was like, why did you pick James again? <laughs> so anyhow, um, but it's in the Bible. I want to talk about it. Hopefully you want to <laughs> talk about it and hear about it as well. So uh, James five chapter, sorry, James chapter five, verses one to six. So let's read it and then we'll, we'll take it from there. So here it's going to come up. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Should we just leave it there? No. Um, Go ahead and put the next slide up, Becca. So... We're going we're gonna to go beyond this, but first let's just drill into the passage for a little minute. Now this is pretty brutal, let's be honest, like this is one of the most direct sort of pieces of scripture that I think you'll find in the New Testament, certainly in, in the book of James. This is like the, um, this is like the vindaloo, if we were to sort of rate them on a sort of curry scale, this is, this is really the one you don't want to have at this time of the morning. 
But what James is doing here, as we've talked about before, James really drew a lot on the Old Testament tradition. He was Jewish, he was writing to Jewish Christians. And actually, when you drill into some of this, he's really anchoring a lot of what he's saying here in the Jewish tradition. And even the six verses, you can break it up into two halves, like I've done there. And this is the kind of thing you see in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets a lot. And it's called, it could be called like a judgment oracle or a woe oracle. And so the first half is a prophetic judgment, and then the second half is an accusation. So that's actually a pattern that you see throughout the Bible. So that's step one of what's going on here. The other thing um, is that it's possible, um, and commentators are kind of disagree on this, but it's possible that this one part of the entire book of James, he's not directly addressing to Christians. The rest of the book of James is, is to Christians. There's disagreement, but the fact that there's no sort of redemptive arc in this passage, it's very sort of, it's a very final kind of judgment. It's it's possible that he was actually just writing to rich people generally and not the people in his churches. A um, few other things to kind of help us see what's going on here. Verse 4, for example, look the wages you feel to pay the workers. That's actually almost a direct kind of quote from the Torah, so the book of Deuteronomy, uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 24, 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of sin. So that's something that, again, the Jewish Christians listening to this letter from James would all have known, right? So he's just anchoring it in what they already knew to be right and true. And the beautiful thing about... Um, the Torah, the law that God had given the Israelites, is that it actually catered for the marginalized in society. Many of us uh, know this, but particularly four categories, widows, orphans, sojourners, or foreigners, and day laborers. Those are the four categories that the Torah always kind of pulls back to as being the people that you must look out for and look after. Um, a couple of other things. So verses two and three, your, you know, your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, gold and silver are corroded. So the very things, this is not a, a day where you were sort of driving Teslas and having the latest iPhones, but it was fine clothes and obviously jewelry and gold and silver that would have indicated that you were rich. And so what James is really just saying here is that it's the very things that you're putting your faith and your trust in that are showing it up to be hollow. Um, now, <clears throat> this is thin ice. Often when we read the Bible in our sort of post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment mindset, and our, you know, we, many of us have grown up with images of kind of hell and eternal conscious torment and all of that stuff. And so we automatically, when we see words like fire, we go, oh yes, I know what that means, you know, little red devil on the shoulder stuff. But just bear with me a sec as I maybe explain what I think probably the people listening to this and therefore James writing it probably was meaning, right? And I'm not trying to take the sting out of it, but I'm also wanting to sort of make clear that it's not some sort of really, really, you know, let's not go there. But gold and silver, now gold and silver don't actually corrode. That's one of the reasons they're a precious metal. But over time, they would have tarnished and stuff. And so this actual idea of, of the corrosion testifying against you and eating your flesh like fire, he's taking basically the analogy of like rust that would have happened to the goods, right? The things, so you leave it for too long and it tarnishes and it rusts and it rots and it goes away. He's kind of using that as a metaphor of what that does to your soul, right? Like that's kind of, I think, what he's saying here. And the other thing, um, you've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, right? Difficult line. And again, some type of preachers that we probably all grew up listening to, and aha, I've got you, you know? 
What is it? It's a farming analogy. This is all talking about landowners and farmers and people who mowed fields. It's, it's an agrarian culture. And what is the day of slaughter? Which animals would be chosen first? The fat ones, right? The, 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 the beefy cows. And so he's saying that actually you have condemned yourselves. He's not literally saying there's going to be a day of slaughter, okay? which again, that's that literal interpretation. He, it's an analogy. It's a farming analogy. So by living in luxury and self-indulgence, you have actually condemned yourself. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, so that's just some points I wanted to make about the, the actual passage itself. But as I was reading this and kind of thinking about it and trying to work out how to structure this, I actually just felt like this is just a great opportunity to kind of zoom out and just talk about wealth and riches and the relationship between the rich and the poor. So rather than sort of sticking in the passage for uh, too long, I think it would be great to just do that if you would allow me to. And um, ironically, this was not part of the plan, but um, it's Black Friday this week, and then Cyber Monday, and goodness knows, probably pre-Black Friday and post-Cyber Monday sales. And so in a way, this is actually really good timing, I think, to talk about some of this stuff. And um, the Bible has a lot to say about money. It has a lot to say about injustice, and it has a lot to say about the relationship between the rich and the poor. Jesus actually talked about money more than he talked about anything else except the kingdom of God. Just let that, like that's kind of wild. Lots of the parables, I think we have 36 or 39 parables and a, almost a third of them are about money and our attitude towards it. And Jesus was unafraid to be challenging and controversial and kind of call things out and we shouldn't be afraid to do that either, even when it's painful and it hits close to home. And I suppose the other thing I wanna say just to cover myself I'm a hypocrite on this, and I think to some extent we probably all are. It's a very, very pervasive thing, right, this, this relationship that we have, and that's why the Bible has so much to say about it, even in a pre-capitalist, kind of pre-consumerist kind of culture. It was already an issue. It's just a human issue. And the other thing to say is that if you're listening to this, if you are in a place right now where you're in serious debt or you find yourself kind of right on the poverty line, this is not supposed to be a heavy sort of guilt-inducing talk at all. And so, you know, talk to us. We, we, we would love to see how we can help you with that. But I suspect for most of us, that's not the case. And so we have to be brave and talk about it. And so there's really kind of three ideas that I want to work through on this whole idea of wealth and riches and the relationship between the rich and the poor. And the first is this, we are wealthy. We are the wealthy people in the world. It's important to keep a, a kind of global perspective. It's very easy not to feel wealthy living in Surrey. I'm looking towards the students over here, probably feeling a little bit like that. Um, but if you look up kind of global wealth inequality, and I would encourage you, and I know many of you are conscious of this and are much more clued into it than I am, but I would encourage you to go and sort of become conscious of it because the, it's really quite staggering and it's, it's getting much, much worse. The wealth of sort of the billionaires in the world has actually increased like rapidly during the pandemic. So we've built a system that is just fundamentally quite unjust. Um, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to talk about economics. My, my story with economics, so I went to a school where if you did well in your GCSEs, um, you had to do a fourth A-level. You know, a lot of schools you can do three A-levels. It's probably all changed because I'm so old now. Um, 
So, uh, and I wanted to, all right, I'll do music, French, history, you know, my, my favorite subjects. And, uh, okay, I'll do German. Well, you can't do German because it clashes with music, okay? I'll do classical civilization, can't do that, clashes with French. On it goes until I'm left with literally the choice between economics and home economics. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's like, ooh, okay. Um, and so I, I did economics for, I don't know, four weeks. The teacher didn't like me because he knew I didn't want to be there. And uh, after about four weeks of this misery, um, the, the vice principal, a wonderful man called Mr. Hedden, uh, kind of called me into his office. He said, look, we've, we've had a discussion and, and we, we're going to make a, a sort of dispensation. This has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. But um, He says, look, we, we'll make a special allowance. We'll let you drop your fourth subject. We'll let you drop economics if you make us one promise. I said, okay, go on. He says, you have to spend all of that time that you would have spent in that fourth subject in the music department practicing guitar. So bless you, Mr. Hedden, if you're listening to this. Um, but yeah, there's how, that's how teachers can make a, a very big difference in your life. And I, I took that promise very seriously, I assure you. I actually spent all of the time I should have been in the other two subjects as well in the, in, in the music department. All that to say, I'm not brilliantly qualified to talk about economics. But just to kind of zoom us out again and talk, talk about where we are. So James is writing to a local agrarian culture, so all these you know, towns, and within that town there would have been landowners, kind of wealthy farmers, and then there would have been day laborers that worked for them, and that's who he's talking about in this passage. Our context is a little more complicated. We have an unrestrained market economy, the dominance of transnational corporations, um, you know, obviously not always paying their fair share of tax that we know this, the system is weighted towards sort of, you know, the, the really uber wealthy not actually having to pay proportionally as much tax as poorer people. Um, I had to laugh when I read that, um, I don't like naming people, but I feel like Jeff Bezos is kind of asking for it at this point. Um, but he couldn't think of anything to spend his money on, so he's gonna go to space. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? No, seriously, a tiny portion of, of his wealth could send millions of children to school. Like, it's, it's absolutely insane. And he's kind of worrying about being the first billionaire to get to space. Anyway, side rant. The crippling burden of two-thirds world debt, pervasive culture of consumerism in the West particularly, the advertising and the ongoing kind of manufacture of our needs and desires keeping us plugged in to that consumerism, the growing disparities of wealth and poverty, both globally but also within countries where the few hold you know, the much. And then finally, and very sort of topically relevant right now, but the ecological destruction that's being kind of wrought by our overconsumption. So all that to say, this applies to all of us by virtue of being born in the UK. We are automatically in the top couple of percent wealthiest people in the world. And if you add to that, an iPhone, a car, a university degree, a house, etc. You just keep climbing up. We, we can't escape it. Um, that, that applies to us. Um, here's, here's one to kind of help maybe some of the students, because I have been where you are, and I know you're going like, this guy's talking rubbish. But even if you have the option of different clothes to wear, you're automatically in the richest couple of percent of people in the world. Have you, who, who has got up in the morning and been like, I'm not really feeling this today. I'm going to try something else on. Who's done that? Right? Okay. That's all we need to talk about. So we are all the wealthy. So that's kind of the first thing that I wanted to kind of establish um, so that we know that this passage, there's not really an easy way out of this. And the second thing I'd like to talk about, and this is probably the, the, the bit I'll spend the longest on, is, is this. Wealth creates a dilemma for a follower of Jesus. 
we could say, is James just like an extremist? Is he, was he having a bad day? Was he being particularly sort of, um, you know, provocative in that passage? And yes, that, that particular passage is very, very kind of no holds barred. But really, he's not that extreme or that unusual. Paul and Jesus, I would say, they say exactly the same stuff. And as I mentioned, Jesus talked about money more than anything except the kingdom of God. God really, really cares about how we make our money, how we use our money, and the kind of spirit that that money engenders in our hearts. How did Jesus understand his mission? Quote Isaiah, I have come to preach good news to who? The poor. Some of the most famous sayings of Jesus that even people who don't follow him know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where... Okay. So we know these things, these are, these are really, really kind of foundational sayings of Jesus and therefore things that as his followers we should take very, very seriously. But it's important to say that money is not inherently bad. I don't think the Bible ever really condemns money. It's just, without us, money is just a thing, right? It doesn't really matter. It's about our attitude to it. Money can be used to feed hungry people. Money can be used to pioneer medical technologies that will save thousands of lives. Money can be used to educate children. Money can be used in many, many great ways. But the Bible teaches that worldly wealth is an area of really high risk in our attempt to walk humbly and wisely with God. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of danger is there? What kind of spirit can wealth engender in my heart? So I want to just walk through a couple of options, and there are a lot. The first and possibly the most important from a biblical point of view, I would say, is that wealth makes us blind to the poor when it's actually our attitude towards the poor that should be one of the defining characteristics of a Christian community. This is already being talked about in the book of James, and this is particularly what's going on in James 5, but even the sin of partiality in chapter 2, where we show preferential treatment to the rich person and ignore the needs of the poor one. This is a, a bit of a long quote, but it, it says this, I think, better than I could. So I'd like to read this out. This is from a brilliant um, New Testament scholar called Richard Bockham, talking about James. <clears throat> God's choice of the poor is definitive of the nature of the Christian community as a countercultural community already living the values of God's kingdom in distinction from those of the world. God has chosen those whom the world considers poor, but who in the eyes of faith are actually rich. This reversal of status must already be practiced in the life of God's people. The community whose life together is characterized by neighborly love must express this above all in honoring the poor. That's from chapter two. Treating the poor in the way that the world would treat the rich. Solidarity with the poor is not just a matter of the mere individual spiritual attitude alone. As always in the book of James, spiritual attitudes are inseparable from praxis. In social relationships, solidarity with the poor is expressed in the social and economic relationships of the community. For the community whose life is characterized not by competitive ambition, status-seeking, and greed, but by peaceableness and selfless consideration of others, attitudes to the poor expressed in concrete economic and social relationships are the litmus test. They are the dividing line between friendship with God and friendship 
with the world. Wow. The way that we treat the poor literally shows whether our friendship is with God or with the world. And despite the rubbish nature of my joke about the haves and the have yachts, it's true, right? That's, that's, who everything, we kind of, that's who we focus on. And that's why the work that is done at the Lighthouse in Woking is so, so important under the, the diligent leadership of Eric's and Beck's uh, Jesperson. A place where uh, people from the margins of our community can come and be treated with dignity and with respect and fed and clothed and equipped to go and do a job interview. Or they can come and they can have... Um, their prams mended for their children, you know, that's where we can really meet the needs of people who don't have anywhere else to go. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been to the lighthouse, go and check it out. It's really quite something. It's very difficult to leave and see what they do there and not be impacted and changed by it. So wealth can make us blind to the needs of the poor. Wealth can elevate us socially, which in turn makes us proud. And just a few verses previously, James has quoted from the Old Testament that God opposes the pride but gives grace to the humble. And that's something that's said numerous times in the Bible in sort of different ways. But um, God's not a fan of, of pride. He's a fan of humility. Another danger of wealth is that it can make us greedy. I think when we talk about the fruit of the spirit, self-control, we often use that in a sort of lustful context. But actually self-control is equally applicable to consumerism, right? Check out... Um, I wrote an essay on Ecclesiastes recently, which is really fun. Um, I'm, I'm saying that because I know you'll laugh. I actually did really like it. Um, <clears throat> but check out this. So this is Ecclesiastes, over two millennia old. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is absurd. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. That is incisive, incisive, relevant wisdom coming to us through many centuries in a pre-consumerist society, in a you know, society where it didn't look like it does now, and yet still he knew that to be true. Wealth can make us greedy. And the other thing, slight bunny trail, but the more wealth you have and the more things that you buy, the more that you need to maintain those. So every time you buy another car, what else do you need? Insurance. You need another MOT. You need to change the tires. Uh, this, for me, <laughs> applies to guitars. Um, <laughs> but every, every guitar needs more strings. Every guitar needs a setup every year. It, it snowballs pretty quickly, I can assure you. But think about it, right? The more, the more that we have, the more we buy, the more that we need to kind of maintain that, and that can put pressure on us. Here's another one, very, very important one. Um, but an incorrect view of wealth and money can infect our entire theology. Hashtag prosperity gospel. It's not, it's not funny anymore. It's like millions of Christians believe this stuff. They believe this kind of... It's not only slightly unbiblical. I think it's literally the opposite of what Jesus and the New Testament writers would tell us. It's, and it's terrifying that it, it just grabs such a hold of people. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a form of Americanism, you know, that obviously not just blaming them as, you know, all of us kind of listen to it. But we have to be so careful with anyone that would hold that kind of theology. Really, really careful because it can infect everything about what we believe and we end up praying for things that we just shouldn't be praying for. We end up sort of believing things about God that are not true of him. 
and we find ourselves in dangerous waters. And lastly, sort of one of the dangers of wealth, it's just a big old distraction. It can be really, it's really distracting and that, as we know, sort of having done the ruthless elimination of hurry and series like that, we're all increasingly conscious of just how sort of saturated our brains and our minds are with stuff and information all of the time. And it's the same with wealth. I am, um, for, for various reasons, I deleted my social media accounts last September and it only occurred to me recently, I haven't sort of suddenly stopped using my phone, I still go on YouTube, guitar, rabbit holes frequently. There's some good stuff, trust me. Um, but one of the things I realized, one of the sort of unintended benefits of getting off that is that I actually don't want as much stuff. So, you know, apply this to whatever it is you're into, but for me it was like, again, you know, music companies that sort of manufacture instruments and accessories and stuff. When you're on Instagram, you're seeing all the new stuff all the time and you're, you know, it's ping, oh, I want that, like, I need that. Whereas now I don't, really, I don't really know what the newest, latest, greatest stuff is, but if something breaks, I'll get it fixed. Or you know, maybe I've, I'll play a couple of gigs and realize, oh, like, I know there's genuinely, a, there's a need there. And so I'm only buying and consuming on the basis of like, kind of genuine needs as opposed to like, ooh, I just fancy that. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Um, something to watch out for with our use of social media particularly. So just some ideas, right? It can make us blind to the poor. It can make us proud. It can make us greedy. It can ruin our entire theology if we're not careful, and it can just be a big old distraction. Those are just, you know, there is more, but those are some of, I think, the most important ways we need to be careful of wealth. Now, finally, what were we going to do about this? It's a big topic. There is no overnight fix. The way that we've built the world carefully over the last couple of centuries is not going to change overnight. We're going to continue being consumers. And it can feel kind of paralyzing, right, in, in, the, in the face of all of this. Like, I forgot to share this earlier, actually, Becca, but if you've got that picture there. This is just one example, and I don't mean to spotlight you if you're the owner of a shiny new electric vehicle. But this is just a, a very sort of topical example of how much of what we can buy is actually sort of somewhere along the line part of a system of injustice. I came across this in The Guardian a few weeks ago, and is an interview with a, a miner in the Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the poorest countries in the world, but yet one of the most resource-rich countries in the world, and particularly cobalt. And cobalt is like, we need a lot of cobalt right now because it makes our phones and our iPads work, but particularly now the kind of batteries in electric cars. And this guy uh, works 12 to 14 hour days in a mine, mining cobalt for electric car manufacturers, being paid, I think it was something like £2.30, or $2.30 a day. And if he works through lunch, he can get a little bit more. If he's sick or misses a day, he doesn't get anything. It's not quite slavery, and there, you know, there's, there's a history of, of slave labor in the, the cobalt mining trade, but it's, this guy's trapped, right? He doesn't have any other options. And now that's not your fault, it's not my fault, but it's part of the system that we are all part of. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we, just, we have to be aware of this stuff now. We can't turn a blind eye to it anymore and it's going to mean some difficult decisions and certainly a lot of prayer and so in the face of this where it feels like almost anything you buy the clothes that we're all sitting in at some point you know may be part of a system of injustice and oppression against the poorest people in the world it could easily sort of it could just feel paralyzing like oh and you stop thinking about it and what happens is you just become despondent and you drift along and you just end up kind of going along with culture 
And so I wanted to just offer a couple of little ways, and I know there'll be many more that you can think of, but just a couple of practical steps, particularly in the face of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, in many ways the epitome of just how ridiculous <laughs> our consumerism has become. Here are a few ideas. Um, the first is this, and um, I, was, I was fortunate to, to spend about an hour on the phone with a wonderful member of this church who has known little and has known much and has kind of um, got a lot of really insightful wisdom on this whole area. And one of the things that kind of caught me by surprise was his kind of uh, encouragement that we, we need to talk about this stuff more. And it's very un-British uh, and it can feel a bit scary, but we actually just need to start talk as Christian brothers and sisters who love each other and want to see each other shaped in the image of God and honoring God. We need to just talk about our use of money more and we need to be less afraid of hiding the numbers. And what he actually said, which I find incredibly challenging, if your financial affairs are a secret, you've got a problem. Wow. If your financial affairs are a secret, now not from your accountant or your financial <laughs> advisor, um, but from a trusted friend who loves Jesus and who loves you and who is willing to ask you difficult questions, or encourage you, you know, it doesn't have to be a heavy thing, but someone who you're just willing to kind of open the figures up. And please hear me, this applies whether you have 10 pounds or a million pounds in your bank account. The principle is the same. We have to start talking about it, maybe in collective this week, probably too big a format to sort of go into real detail, but, you know, maybe just ask some of your, express some of your concerns, your questions, the things that have been bugging you about the whole area of money and of giving. We have to start just talking about it more. The second way that I think um, could be helpful for us is, is to just learn to practice contentment and be generous now. And contentment looks like, I actually don't need to upgrade my iPhone right now. There's nothing wrong with the one I've got. I don't need the new one. Not because there's something inherently wrong with owning an iPhone, but because you, you don't need it. It's as simple as that. And again, this is the danger of the, the social media thing that I've experienced. Like, you just see things and it, it, they're, they're engineered and designed to make you want them. That's literally the whole point. So becoming aware of that and just practicing contentment. You know what? I don't actually need that right now. That five pound, whatever that I was going to buy, maybe I'll just go and buy someone a coffee instead. Be generous, however much or however little is in your bank account. And here's another, I think, biblical principle and one that was confirmed by a few people that I spoke to on this in their experience. But if you're not generous with little, you won't be generous with much. Okay, so whatever you have right now, learn to give it away and to be open-handed. And generosity doesn't have to mean money. It can be whatever you have in your hand. How can you use that to bless other people and to help other people? So rather than always thinking self, which again is the narrative of, of the kind of world that we've built and a lot of the ideas and the philosophies that actually underpin our economy are built on very sort of, you know, self-centered, greedy, pitting humans against each other. Like the people of Jesus should be different. And so ask yourself, like, how can I bless somebody else with this thing that I have, whatever it might be? I keep coming back to this, but I got a lot of guitars. Um, in my kind of life as a, as a professional guitar player, you know, I built some up. But when I was 17 and I started playing sort of professionally, I had the kind of acoustic and electric that my mum had first got me, um, and my mum and dad had got me. Um, I was starting playing gigs and suddenly I, you know, actually I need something a little 
you know, better. And this amazing guy, beautiful guy, uh, Trey, American, who lived in Northern Ireland, had a pick, only guy in Northern Ireland with a pickup truck, and he was from Georgia. Um, but he was so generous to me with his guitars. He just, like, he got, I remember this one time, he got this Gretsch, this beautiful electric guitar, and the day after he got it, he handed it to me, and I had it for, like, 18 months and played all my gigs on it, and he didn't once ask about it. He was so just free and just let this stuff flow. And in turn, then, I'm not able to kind of, you know, see someone and go, hey, borrow this, like, try this out, and just be free with the stuff that we have, because it's not ours anyway. Anyway, be generous now with whatever you have in your hand. And finally, and I'll finish with this, um, let's become more discerning consumers. Make every purchase a decision. Another practice that I know a couple of people have is that you know, they set a, a sort of limit with their spouse or with someone above which you have to kind of sort of check that it's an okay purchase. So say it's 50 pounds and it doesn't include the weekly shop or whatever. But those luxury purchases, it's like, you know, and then above a certain amount, it's go, well, is this beneficial? How, you know, how can we bless others with this? Is, this, is it necessary? Ask, you know, those kind of questions that we've been talking about, some of those principles, making every purchase uh, decision. And of course, now we, we have resources online where we can find out which companies are more ethical, which companies are more environmentally friendly, all of those questions. I just think we have to do some hard work around this stuff and not kind of just go with the flow. Um, we love things that are easy and kind of comfortable and doing the same old things. But I just think it's coming to the point now. We actually just have to be prepared to kind of give up some of that teeny bit of freedom, um, do a little bit more work when it comes to making certain purchases and, and try and make better decisions. So becoming a more discerning consumer. I'll maybe leave the students out of this one because I get your situation, most of you. but. Just don't do Black Friday. Just stay away from it. It's like, we don't need that stuff that badly. People fight on Black Friday, for goodness sake. If you go, I was looking it up, but every year since you know, it became a thing not that long ago, there's fights, particularly in wealthy countries, over TVs and yanking things out of the way and people getting into fights over stuff. Like, let's just not, let's just not do that. Let's not take part in that. Don't go on Amazon on Friday. Don't go on Amazon on Monday. Um, you know, just stay away from it for, you know, this week. Just as a little act of defiance, a little act of resistance, do something generous instead. And so really all I've wanted to do today, and I'm, I'm aware this is a huge topic and there's so much we could talk about, both on the area of injustice, the area of kind of consumption, the area of wealth and the relationship to the poor. This, this is such a vast topic and so I know that I've not addressed everything and couldn't in the time, but... All I wanted to do is just provoke a conversation. And so please, please, in collectives, in lunch today with your family, whatever it is, just talk about it. Just ask some of this stuff. Maybe read the passage again and go, whew, that was, that was intense, wasn't it? Maybe over a, a good vindaloo, who knows? <laughs> and just begin to talk about it. Ask some of these questions. And let's just, let's just take a little step at a time. And like I said, there's no overnight fix to this. It's a massive, pervasive kind of thing. And I think the other thing is we're always going to have to come back to this and keep checking our heart and our spirit and our attitude on this stuff. It's not going to, you can't sort of, yep, figure that out, moved on with your life because we're all going to be in different financial situations throughout our lives. If you're a student today, someone told me this just before the service, but your earning potential as students now over your lifetime is pretty vast. And so might, right now, it might not feel like it, but one day, a lot of this stuff, you might have to make some difficult decisions.
And so just to close, I've kind of um, drawn on a few different sources and, and pulled together this prayer. Um, I just wondered if you'd like to stand with me and, and pray this prayer. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, give us grace to accept with grateful thanks that which we are given. Teach us the difference between appreciation and idolatry, between holy enjoyment and wanton indulgence, between thanksgiving for your provision and misuse of the resources with which you have entrusted us. Tune our consciences till they thrum to the resonant tones of your spirit. Teach us contentment. Teach us generosity. Let us delight in giving to others as you have delighted in giving to us. Father, keep the poor of this world who are so precious to you at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Fill us with love and fortitude to confront the causes of global poverty. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.